everybody. Welcome to uh, Sparkler Podcast number 15. I am your host, Lillian Diaz-Prisbel. I am our comics editor at Sparkler, and I'm here with Leanne Centaur, um, who's head of prose and also the author of Tokyo Demons, and then the great Jennifer Doyle, the creator of Knights Errant. And we are bringing you a podcast that is cleverly titled Sadism and Why We Love It. <laughs> I think it should again. I think it should go back and say suffering because I think sadism is going to sting weird. That's right. Take two. <laughs> the title of this podcast is "Suffering and Why We Love It." <laughs> but sadism is good too. Whatever. <laughs> it's just it's different levels of sadism. Um, yeah. We I think the my my original like title for this was authorial sadism and why we love it. Oh. So. That's good too. Um, a little it's, more. It's all, yeah, torturing characters because we have two people here who are just freaking great at torturing their characters, and then <laughs> I am a consumer of fiction featuring tortured characters. So um, that's how we're all going to contribute to this particular mess. Um, <laughs> welcome, like... guys. <laughs> Feel free to introduce yourselves. Uh, Jen, you can go first. Yeah. Okay, I'm Jen Doyle. Um, I do Knights Errant. And torture my characters, apparently. <laughs> literally. <Yeah. laughs> and also literally. less literally. <laughs> Why don't you give people sort of a summary of Knights Errant and the fictional sadism Therian and, and how incorporated it is into your plot? <laughs> All right. So Knights Errant is about a, um, basically about a very vengeful vagrant named Wilfred, who is out to slowly get revenge for something that hasn't been revealed yet. Um, and in their plight to get revenge, um, other people get involved, including Beppe, a prison guard, um, his dear friend Anton, another prison guard, and, Os and Oswald and Kadeen, um, soldiers for um, an army that are trying to um, besiege the city that Anton, Beppe, and Wilfred are currently in. Medieval warfare. Yep, medieval warfare. And I guess in terms of fiction, authorial sadism, not a lot of good things happen to any of these characters. It's all, it's all pretty rough. They have a rough go of it. Go of it. <laughs> well, it's wartime, you know. It's not like yeah. this is a time of peace and prosperity for anybody. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, though, that we, we get to a scene early on where, you know, one character basically has to whip his best friend slash i guess now yeah. we know that they're lovers <laughs> yeah and then not only does that but then a half a chapter later then has to go back and talk to the guy who made him whip his best friend slash lover and yep. have a really awkward hand-holding conversation with him because so, so we got God. that was yeah. that was where we built the literal sadism and then we just have some like emotional figurative sadism <laughs> as well yeah. which was extremely popular with our fan base, let me say. So, like, yeah, I'm, yes. I'm actually really surprised by how popular it is with the fan base. But I'm not like I'm not unhappy about it. I'm very mm -hmm. happy. <laughs> I do think that people were. See, I'm not sure if "popular" is really the right word. I think that incredible whipping scene with Beppe and Anton, because. I know this is already maybe too late, but we're, we're spoiling a little bit of Knight's Errant here. All stuff that's been serialized yeah. already. So if you're caught up, you'll be fine. Um, but because that, you know, where Beppe knew he was going to be whipped for something he had done plot related, that he sort of was aware that 
he was going to pay for this. And then the Margrave making uh, Anton do it. Like, it was just, it was so perfectly emotionally horrible <laughs> that <laughs> I think people were just reacting so strongly to that. They didn't, like, the actual whipping scene you don't see. There, there's not, you don't yeah. see physical um, suffering on the screen. And that's something we're going to probably bring up a couple of times in terms yeah. of, like, squick factor and stuff. But it was sort of like Pepe's brain is already kind of on the the... He's already, like, on the verge of breakdown. Things have been really bad. He's under a lot of stress. It's clear that he's been abused where he's been for a while. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of, like, piling on this to, like, this guy who's trying to hold his head up. And, uh, you know, he got through it, obviously, and because that's kind of what Pepe is, like, a tough guy. <laughs> yeah. No, he's been through worse, but this is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. And it was just sort of, like, the, the seeing them go through these trials, uh, knowing that they're kind of tough guys, but it would, it was just, it's hard to describe. It's, it's sadism, certainly, like enjoying this a little bit, um, but not in a, in, in a way where you're sort of being titillated by the violence or anything in a, just in a way that it's like mm. them hitting rock bottom in such a poetic way. <laughs> uh, people reacted very strongly yeah. to that. It was mostly like, oh, my tears. Oh, it's not fair. Oh, you poor things. And our site was flooded with people <laughs> all kind of suffering together and, and, and commiserating. And <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was great. And then with the latest update, people retroactively realizing how it was much worse. Yes. Than it initially <laughs> seemed to be. Yes. So two days ago, uh, we posted the page where Pepe and Anton kiss, which is, is that the first, that's the first kiss Knights Aaron has ever had, right? Including like the old version. Yeah. Yep. yeah oh, so. well, there's, uh, um, the old there version sex had. in the old version. Yeah. But not kissing. But not kissing. <laughs> so, yes, you're correct. <laughs> yeah, so. First kiss in Knights Aaron ever. Yeah, it, it, which is a big deal. And of course, Beppe and Anton, there had been things kind Congrats. of... Congrats. Good yeah, job. Yeah, you did. Like, that was our biggest day on the site ever. <laughs> the internet exploded. Uh, oh. You know, they've been waiting four years for <laughs> somebody to kiss, <laughs> anybody to kiss. And Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I'm a big fan years, of the but... slow burn. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be another slow burn until they hold hands. <laughs> which is great. It's actually on... really cute. Yeah, it was... Go a... on a date. It was uh, it was a great kiss. I think it came at a time when people really w weren't expecting it, but it it worked so perfectly. Um, and then so everybody was really yeah, to be honest, I wasn't expecting it because I don't think it was in the thumbnails. So yeah, I didn't it wasn't like I knew the conversation, and then it was sort of like it just showed up, and I was like, oh, that's timely. Good job. <laughs> great job. Well, I, though, I had but... a revelation while I was um, doing the backgrounds on that page. I was like, this page is boring. I can make them kiss. I have that power. This is how the creative sausage is made, people. It's like, yeah. I'm this bored of this page. Bored. What can I do? I can have somebody get whipped again, or they can make out. <laughs> so, which I think is actually well, a really good segue to Tokyo Demons, which also involves <laughs> both a lot of character sadism and making out. So, um, so Leanne, take it away. Talk about uh, yourself and Tokyo Demons. Uh, well, like as Lillian said, I'm an editor uh, at Sparkler, but I was doing Tokyo Demons before Sparkler. We kind of folded it in. It's sort of an homage to uh, Japanese light novels and manga. So it's a bunch of Japanese teenagers, some of whom are supernatural and 
there's a mega corp they're trying to take down and there's sort of drug lords in it. And it's just one of these like coming of age, a bunch of teenagers in over their head story, bunch of bad guys, etc. The main girl can turn into a swarm of insects uh, and her buddy who's kind of the, uh, they have sort of an alternating perspective between them. He's a pickpocket who was kind of bounced around the foster system growing up. And uh, one thing that I, I, I like about manga in, in separate from sort of Western canon, like geek canon, is the degree of emotional duress that characters go through. I think that's something that, you know, superhero yeah. comics and kind of Western cartoons and stuff, they don't, they don't tend to push that too hard. Um, you know, it's almost, I think about like Disney, like people aren't doing so well and then they outsmart the villain and everything is okay and things never get really get that bad. You don't see people have mental breakdowns. You don't see like ugly sobbing. I mean, you'll see a little bit more of that in superhero mm -hmm. stuff, but certainly not in, you know, more mainstreamy things for, at least for like young adults. Once I started it, I was like, mm, I can make this maybe worse. <laughs> so, uh, that's always good. Yeah. So in the sense that I really like things like, well, you know, although it's not my favorite like anime, like uh, Attack on Titan is a pretty good example of just people constantly under duress and they've got like beady eyes, you know, and they're sweating and they're just, <laughs> you know, like everything is bad all the time. Um, that kind of, I wanted to take that sort of thing and put it in a more realistic context. So in the sense that these are a bunch of like 15 and 16 year olds who are pulled into like an underground like drug war in Tokyo, they are in really big trouble. They're they're constantly kind of trying to deal with coming of age and like blossoming sexuality and like found family and you know half of them didn't even have families so they're like even trying to make friends but a lot of the personalities are clashing except like some of them die and like some of them get kidnapped and some of them have to go on these missions where they're undercover and everything is really scary and I wanted it to feel incredibly real which ended up making it more horrible because I think that there's a degree of sort of the uh, the teenagers in anime and manga, they do kind of step up a lot, you know? <laughs> like, they do yeah. go through, even in, like, Ava and stuff, which is, like, Evangelion, where, you know, they're showing how incredibly fra mentally fragile these kids are. Um, that was one of the few shows I had seen where I felt like they kind of addressed it more realistically. They, they brought it down a little bit more to, like, yes, they're going through emotional duress, but it's kind of layered, and it's affecting them and changing them way more than maybe your average uh, manga about, you know, magical teenagers would. Mm -hmm. And it just, it kind of, you know, built on itself. And after a while, uh, like Doyle, <laughs> I, uh, do you mind if I call you Doyle? Oh, that's <laughs> do you fine. Go Don't worry. Because <laughs> all your friends Jenner. call you Doyle and I picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with Jen or Doyle. Okay. Um, similar to what you had done in Knights Errant, it's like, Every once in a while, I was like, man, I need to, like, have somebody be happy for a minute. Or, <laughs> like, people have to, to connect. Uh, you know, they have to make out and kiss. It's a little bit... I don't want to say it's different from Knights Errant, because I do think there's a certain degree of sort of sexual dysfunction in the characters of Knights Errant. Mm -hmm. um, but I found <laughs> Oh, there is. Oh, yeah. And which, is, which is great. <laughs> but I also found that I was using sort of the sexuality sometimes to make their situations more horrible, because, like, they couldn't... They'd make out, but then they'd like cry about it because <laughs> it was almost like, "What am I doing? Do I love this person, or am I just really scared and they're here?" Um, mm -hmm. Stuff like that. But the, the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, and I found that um, I think similar to Knights Errant's fans, 
once you once you're doing that for a while, people who are reading the story, that's kind of what they're coming there for. Because it's not like Knights Errant or Tokyo Demon started happy. <laughs> like, it, yeah, no, they're yeah. they're troubling premises where where things are going. They're kind of going bad from the beginning. And I think Knights Errant has that beautiful opening. Um, where Will is in jail playing cards with Bebe and saying, how do you think you're going to die? I mean, like, when you start like that, <laughs> if that's like your opener. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's like, well, this 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 is going well. I can see that we're going to a happy place from now on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know if it's so much descending into darkness as just kind of like, you know, paddling in the pool, you know, shallowly, and sometimes you go a little deeper and sometimes you pull yourself up for a minute get a towel and then you jump back in <laughs> yeah of the terribleness that the pool is terribleness <laughs> yes it's funny because i'm not a big fan of stories that are sort of like the quote-unquote grim dark of like a lot of contemporary fantasy and science fiction where it's sort Same. of like actually grittiness yeah. for grittiness sake yes so but i think it's that idea of you know what you're getting into from the start but there's those moments of of hope and sunshine it's it's mm-hmm. Things may be in this situation, but you have those moments of connection, those moments of humanity. And I think that's probably the other aspect of it is that sense that even in bad situations, you can still be a good person or Mm -hmm. good things can still happen to you um, rather than just everything is unrelentingly grim and and horrible. Um, And so like... uh, In the back of my head when you were talking about Attack on Titan, Leanne, I was actually thinking about Fruits Basket, which is still... (laughs) It's kind of an essentially upbeat and cheerful manga in some ways, but it has these really, like, dark moments of, like, basically everybody in that series has been emotionally abused in some way. Um, even, you know, Toru, who's kind of unrelentingly cheerful, like, she's not coming out of a happy situation, and, like, her, her essential backstory is not particularly great either. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, like, that's, I think part of it, what makes it so compelling is that simultaneous, um, you know, that, that sense that even when things are bad, there's still a hope. And even when things are bad, you can still be kind and, and still kind of be human and respond to people rather than just being this grim, dark machine all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's certainly true for Attack on Titan is that sense of humanity. Well, this is the so. shoujo tradition. Like, <laughs> it's very literal in Attack on Titan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, but anyway. Yeah, like Fruits Basket is a good example of even the fairly you know, brightish shoujo have that element of fucked upness, emotional fucked upness, which I think is important right. to discern. Um, because again, I think that um, something that both Knights Errant and Tokyo Demons, we don't really like to focus on physical suffering that much. Um, with one exception, mm-hmm. I really like describing people who are scene. sick. <laughs> What'd you say? Apart from the whipping scene. But you didn't see oh, yeah, that. Apart from the whipping scene. Like, yeah, you're it was... Not, mo- you're not the details of, of like the physical suffering necessarily yeah. uh, or or what's what the focus is on in that scenario is the characters and their reactions to it more mm-hmm. than the the situation itself um and their agency so like their yeah. ability to they're, kind they're of process their that. Own suffering <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh man but yeah total diversity is really important especially mm-hmm. with um balancing out like authorial statism and not make and making sure it's not just a complete drag yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, you don't want tragedy porn, you don't want torture porn. Like these things are all important, yeah. even if it's something that's going to be a lot of suffering. Like you said, you have to have those moments. Uh, 
where people are kind of clinging to each other, where they kind of overcome stuff. I think that, you know, really important moments in, in something like Knight's Errant is, you know, Beppe putting his shirt back on after, you know, or, or like there's that moment where he takes his shirt off before when he knows he's being whipped, he's going to be whipped. So there's kind of like that tension. And then afterwards, he's kind of processing it and he's like upset with Anton. It's it's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's really upset. But he's like, he's like, I shouldn't be angry at you because I know it's not your fault, but I'm still really angry at you. So it's best if you leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's that processing of bad things that that's so compelling in a story like that because i think like when you think about the average reader everybody's gone through some shit in their life right like even if you've yeah. led a privileged happy life that's the shit that goes down even if it's something as simple as like unrequited love or failing a test everybody has mm -hmm. those moments of darkness some people more than others and i think watching somebody in fiction go through that um is a safe space for you to have a little bit of catharsis about like oh that sucks and you can kind of like get some of that some of that feeling out um and then mm -hmm. you can close the book you know like you can go back to your real life I, I think uh also sometimes seeing other characters go through shit and just kind of get over it or um in the case something like deadpool which i read a really interesting article about the new deadpool movie and how it was basically dealing with abuse and trauma with levity you know like kind of oh, making fun right. of bad things um that a lot of people, especially people who've had particularly difficult lives, really like mm -hmm. seeing somebody laugh about these terrible things that, mm -hmm. you know, happen to them. That I, I think that's, it's a very powerful, uh, fiction is a very powerful tool for that, for people to process these kinds of emotions yeah. in sort of a safe space. And I think the difference between like a good piece of fiction that does this and a bad piece of fiction is when the characters don't have agency and or when mm. this kind of, you know, fictional sadism is used to clearly try and titillate the audience. Uh -huh. um, where you're just mm -hmm. watching people being tortured or whipped or whatever, or, you know, it's kind of unthinking, unthinkingly woven into everything that's going on. Like, there have been a couple manga that I either, um, you know, had to read for work or something, stuff I wouldn't normally pick up on my own, where mm -hmm. they were sort of, they were based around sort of the so sexual torture of girls was really integrated into the plot in a way that it was like oh boy you could see them keep trying to find plot related reasons for these things to happen and then the, the scene would be 20 minutes of somebody groping her or making her cry or, or whatever and it's just oh, like geez. yeah it just like made my skin crawl and it was like this wasn't even an exploration of how this would make her feel it was just they wanted to see somebody abusing a girl on screen yeah and it's very but obvious i think when someone does that like the intent yeah. of the author one of the best ways to make sure it's not exploitative is to like look at the scene and be like, is this trying to say something meaningful mm -hmm. <laughs> or is it just like weird, dark, titillating eye candy without mm -hmm. like mm. any depth to it? I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, sometimes it, that's what you're reading. That's Sometimes that's what you're reading the uh, comic for. But yeah, like yeah. I do think there is a slim area of fiction where I could kind of see that justified. Um, I don't like when it's dressed up as something other than torture porn. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that same. really bothers me because it, it's sort of an insidious kind of, well, it's rape culture really is what it is. Yeah. And you also have to mm. see like who is suffering and how are they suffering? Is it always the same gender suffering? Is it the always same, always the same character? Mm. What is the age of the person who's suffering a lot? Like yeah. you can start narrowing in on when it's really fetishy because you'll see the same patterns over and over and over again. 
like, is it always a teenage girl? <laughs> it's usually because there are a mm-hmm. lot of people that that is a genre, like suffering teenage girls, and mm-hmm. not just in Japan either. Um, mm-hmm. And and there. And I would say, in in the defense of the suffering of teenage girls, there's a whole genre of like YA fiction that's devoted to that as well. The sort of like. Uh, go ask Alice, you know, I became a drug addicted, whatever. And like that sort of like mm-hmm. the fiction for teen girls to sort of that deliberately tries to kind of fuck you up a little bit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, but you're supposed to relate to the girl. Uh, yeah. Not you're the person to relate- who's touching her. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was an interesting, uh, I think it was, it was one of like the, the sort of feminist manga bloggers on Tumblr a couple of days ago did a little like mini piece about gunslinger girl. Mm-hmm. Um, which I remember when oh, it came out, there were a lot of people girl. Like, oh yeah, it's like empowering because it's like girls it's killing not, it's people not. and like they're regaining their, yeah. And this was like, it's this really just not. ripping that to shred. But yeah, when I bought, walked, uh, watched uh, Gunslinger Girl way back, I remember enjoying it because it had nice animation, but I was like, this is really skeevy. <laughs> cause like, yeah. have any of you seen it? I have not, no. I've only seen bits of it. I couldn't. I couldn't really bring myself to watch it, <laughs> even at the well, time, kind of creeped me out. It's bad news because <laughs> <laughs> of the premise is that it's this organization like saving girls from the hospital who have like they're they're either saving girls from hospitals or like from other orphanages or like bad systems, and then like without their consent, turning them into cyborgs. <laughs> It's like, well, your life sucked, so here's a gun. Have fun. Mm. And, like, make them really right. codependent on their older male, like, trainers. Oof. And, like, at Someone first, thought that was like, empowering? Oh, so this girl. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, some of, in the first season, there, it was kind of ambiguous whether all the girls were in love with their, like, in love with the men who are raising them essentially mm-hmm. and at first it just right. seemed like the main right. character and so with the other characters i forget their names now but she has twin tails um she was pretty empowering at first i thought and then it's like nope she also loves her trainer and it's kind of weird and i'm like okay all right that's mm-hmm. fine i guess <laughs> and it just continued to get really skeevy so i ended up dropping it yeah but... uh not to go on a rant about this but uh... That's a part of the... See, I'm not a huge Madoka fan for not quite the same reason. Me neither. Yeah, because like... And, and this goes a little bit deeper into like stuff made for men versus stuff made for women. But when I saw it kind of late and people were like, oh, it's the new Shoujo Deconstruction, you know, like Utena or Princess Tutu. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I watched it. And I'm like, this is for men. Like, this is a male gaze, G-A-Z-E version of the magical girl's story where the girls are symbolic like walking tragedies very it was Mm -hmm. very rare in that show where i was asked as an audience member to really relate to these girls i mean they were like little pieces like oh she has this problem and you know it's relatable and then she dies or turns evil or whatever um Mm -hmm. and they were clearly kind of like symbolic uh they also were drawn you know it's the moe style they were drawn to look way younger than they were supposed to be so they look like these babies running around um and it's not like it was Mm -hmm. a bad show like i I think it had a lot of value but it just kind of bothered me that people couldn't see why this was nothing like utena (laughs) where like yeah how Uh could you compare those two things like utena is about like 
women with like gender and and sexuality issues and everybody is fucked up and everyone's banging their sister and like are they in hell or not and like whatever as opposed to like oh all little girls are destined to either be princesses or witches which essentially was kind of what Madoka was I mean they were abused like it wasn't their fault or anything but it was like a a parable you know (laughs) like Mm -hmm. uh, about things and it was like it's fine. Madoka is fine, but please don't tell me what it is because it is clearly not on the shoujo tradition. This is somebody for you know. It felt a little bit like appropriation. Like sometimes when, when yeah, it's funny because <laughs> you you say like girls are always you know they're you know princesses or witches. Like that's literally the plot of Utana. <laughs> so yes, yeah. um, like the idea that that you know uh, yeah, it's just but it complicates. But Utena ends up complicating it in a way that yeah. Madoka right. doesn't really. In a way that Madoka doesn't. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is, like, Utena is also created by a man, which is, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so Tio is in there, but, like, it's very much Ikuhara. Um, yeah. So it's it's not just necessarily who's making it, but it is definitely who the audience is. Right. So, um, I, I'm, I like Madoka a lot more than, than either of you do, but I definitely, I think the fact that the girls don't really realize the situation that they're in until so late in the series yeah and so Mm -hmm. they're they're kind of complicit in their own suffering in a way that they don't have agency over um until the very very end and even then they they don't Mm -hmm. they still don't really they just i don't know yeah and the the same with with gunslinger girl in that the the argument that i read on tumblr was basically that, that one of the biggest problems with particularly i think she was looking at the manga series was that it's all told through the perspective of the handlers rather than the girls themselves too. Um, And so you have this male perspective, literally the male gaze of what's going on with these, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of abused cyborg girls. And so the, the reader stand in there is this male character who's kind of indirectly viewing the suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas with both Tokyo demons and with Knights errant. And I think with the kind of sort of, uh, sadistic fiction that I enjoy. Um, the characters are either, we said, sort of complicit in their own suffering, or they they have a certain degree of agency in the situation that they're in. You know, even if mm-hmm. you know Anton doesn't really have a choice to whip Beppe or not, because I think his choice is like, you whip Beppe or we kill you now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's still him making that decision and then accepting the consequences for it in some ways. And you get that in the aftermath scene between the two of them is is wrangling with the like, yeah, I guess you kind of had to do that, but now how do we maintain our relationship with each other um, in any sort mm-hmm. of quasi-normal way, um, which is not necessarily something you get in a lot of other fiction that's similar. It's something that really bugs me about the Game of Thrones TV series versus the books oh, as yes. well. Oh. Um, speaking of... <laughs> oh, boy. Male gaze. oh, boy. Um, boy, is that a rant for another day. But uh, the, the agency of the female characters in the Game of Thrones books is something that I really appreciate. And I think George R. R. Martin generally does a really good job with. And it's something that I felt was, whether this was deliberate or accidental or just sort of ignorance, is something that gets dropped really easily and really quickly in the TV series in ways that range from just sort of annoying to downright infuriating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that really has a lot to do with it. It's like you can put a character in a bad situation and they can choose how to make the best of it. And that's, that's, I think an interesting story point, 
but uh, choose, putting them in a bad situation just to sort of this vague sense of like character growth. They're like, well, we want to really see them hit bottom somehow, but mm. you don't get the chance to see them grow or like their suffering in that situation is, is designed to make a different character grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's where it starts to get really messy. So like when I was walking in my car this evening thinking about sort of how to, what questions to talk about in this, I was thinking of how to avoid the sort of women in refrigerators tropes. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And how do you separate sort of what you guys are doing in your work with the typical like, why don't we just kill this person to, you know, give this other person mm-hmm. motivation for like the next part of their character. So arc. lazy. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, so um, discuss. Uh, one thing that I was kind of amused by, which is a mean way of saying it, is that people were, after Beppe and Anton Kiss, people were immediately scared that they were going to die the next page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, That's a reasonable fear. And it's like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> That'd be too much. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be way too much. And I feel like that, that, like, just to give them a moment of happiness and then to immediately fridge them yeah. would just, like, there's no meaning. It's like... Right. It's, I guess, hard to say. Like, there's a complete absence of meaning It's to just, like, kill someone off for no reason after, like, a happy moment just to, like, shock people. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, what like, right, shock value right. is a very valuable tool when you're writing fiction, especially if you're doing a serial, like both of these books are, that um, you need to kind of keep surprising people and making them, like, you know, while they're reading, uh, get that little gasp in there. But you have to do it right. You can't just do things that are shocking but don't make sense. You can't do things like you said. Mm-hmm. If they had just died the next page, then you would, your your story would really turn into tragedy porn, which it's not. It is a dark, <laughs> co- morally complicated story about a lot of fucked up people doing a lot of fucked up things to each other, um, mm-hmm. justified or not. <laughs> I'd even say it's a black comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, definitely pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, and and I so, like that about it. I think that the tone you have is unique and really interesting in that way and part of why i like the suffering of like anton or beppe or you know uh is because of of how it's handled because of how it kind of deepens their characterizations how they both react to it very differently um that that's another element of agency that not every person is going to react to abuse the same way or you know process it the same way and then you have somebody like will who has gone through bad shit and is turning it into a weapon against the people who went against them and mm-hmm. that's something that I'm personally obsessed with. I really like when people are, rather I should say characters, when characters are victimized or they have their agency stripped from them, whether or not they had their eyes wide open going in or not, and that they turn those uh, things that happen to them into weapons they use to either just regain that agency or use it against the person who abused them. And not to sp- Spoil book three of Tokyo Demons too much, but there's a lot of elements of that coming through that, and a lot of books one and two, that it was kind of like this shit snowball that was just like kind of going downhill and getting faster and faster when things are getting worse and worse. And it was very important for each kid's character arc for them to have that moment where they kind of get their shit back together and they, not even, I don't even say bounce back. It's, it's kind of like they found their niche in what they were mm. kind of good at, what they could how they could be strong in their own way. And it's really different how each of them found, you know, in the case of like ISA, she just turns into like, it took her a while to like accept the fact that she turns into insects, but then she's like, oh, I could sting people. It took like four chapters and then she's just stinging everyone. It's like, yay, more fights. I'm going to sting everybody. <laughs> but like her character arc was fairly simple in the beginning, but some of the other characters, like things that were robbed from them, you know, 
one kid became addicted to this horrible drug that kind of changed his body and pushed him through puberty before he was ready for it. Some other kid was like sexually abused. They were like all of these issues that they kind of they had hit their rock bottom. And then the next section of their character arc is them kind of crawling out of it and finding strength in the new person they are after that abuse. Because some of them, it kind of, you know, some people bounce, it kind of bounced off them a little bit. They're just like, ah, fuck that shit. I'm gonna, like, I'm more than that. And some people are like, I'm gonna use that. And now I'm gonna be a different person. Like, they're kind of owning that victimization. And that's something that I really like when, not only when characters are shaped by their experiences, but that kind of agency where you don't necessarily bury your problems, although some characters can, and that's perfectly perfectly great, but they kind of own it uh, and and it becomes a part of them and they, they use it to build who they are as a person because it already happened to them. And like, because uh, I do think that the suffering of, especially emotional suffering of a character can be mitigated by them deciding they're not going to let it destroy them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, similarly, um, Wilfred and Oswald just later on, again, not to spoil anything, but the way that they handle their experiences, which are on some level very similar, it shows a different way that they own up to like certain shitty situations that happened to them when they were children. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting, I guess, like presenting to the readers like their different ways of coping and their different ways of adapting to situations and mm-hmm. how they grew from them. That's uh, especially anybody who read the old version of Knights Errant. There was a lot of Oswald in that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the new version, too. <laughs> his, his time, he'll get his time to shine. It's <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so what kind of, like, this is this is a lame question in some ways, but what were some of the things that you read as a youth in our younger years that sort of influenced you or, like, inspired you that made you hurt in that really good way that <laughs> fiction can make you hurt? Yeah. Uh. Well, <laughs> Knights Errant is... Or who are some of your other favorite authors who can do stuff like this? This is a weird example because it's ex- it's someone who did it so badly it inspired me to try to do it better. <laughs> which, Fair enough. Which is Berserk. That's why I became a manga editor is because I thought I could do it better. So, <laughs> yeah. Big inspiration for Knights Errant, if it isn't already kind of apparent, it's, is Berserk by Kentaro Mira. Mm, right. Um, Berserk was frustrating because the way it dealt with the male characters dealing with past abuse, because the three main characters, um, Guts, Griffith, and Casca, both have histories of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, All of them do. Like, Griffith had to sell his body as a child. Casca went through a lot of bad things. And uh, Guts was also pimped by his father um, to men in his mercenary camp. And the way that Mira deals with Guts and Griffith handling their past abuse is so poetic and so well handled that when he tried to deal with how Casca deals deals with her abuse, it was the difference was so clear that he just wanted to draw Casca getting violated. Oh. Like he was very respectful of Guts and Griffith in a way that he was never respectful of Casca. Yeah. So that glaring double standard. Ugh. Yeah, it was like with Guts and Griffith, you get these like just these glimpses, these painful glimpses of what happened to them. And it's from their perspective. Like you see it from their eyes. But with Casca, you see it from her violator's eyes. Oof. Clear as light as day. It's just 
Oh, Berserk <laughs> is frustrating. God, that sucks. And not to say that you can't do a perspective through an abuser's eyes and it can't be interesting. Like I, I, I actually did a little bit of that um, with the Margrave. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. immediately when Beppe is taking off his shirt right before the whipping, mm-hmm. it's mostly from the Margrave's perspective. Yeah. Like okay. you see it through his eyes and then immediately, I guess, after the whipping, you see things from Anton's perspective mm-hmm. being used as a weapon of abuse. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, when you just constantly do it, it can be so, so bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, like you said, it, it has to be like you could see the stark difference in how the different characters were treated. Like if mm-hmm. you have a rotating perspective and some of those people are abusers and some of those are victims and you're seeing it from kind of everybody's point of view because you know abusers are human too like Mm -hmm. seeing their motivations as horrible or as fucked up as they are i think can be really interesting i mean just off the top of my head like lolita i think is a fascinating book and so incredibly misinterpreted (laughs) oh yeah every time they make it a movie it's like are we have you read the book like did you totally miss the fucking point there Um, was an interesting article about the covers of lolita um, oh i think i saw that and Nabokov explicitly rec- um, requested that they do not put a little girl on the cover. Mm-hmm. That it'd be like an uh, image of Humbert Humbert mm-hmm. or like hands mm-hmm. or something. But then they're like, no, here's a sexy little girl. And it's like, no, no, uh. you missed it. You missed the point. <laughs> yeah, talk about like missing the point for, when did that come out, 50 years ago? Yeah. Like there's yeah, this long, yeah, there was, I think a book that came out about the different covers of Lolita throughout the years and through in different countries mm. and stuff and showing kind of the variety of it. And that's when they, they dove into it. Cause I think I might've read the same articles that you did, Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that had always bothered me about Lolita that, you know, <laughs> the, the many ways that I'd heard about Lolita in popular culture and seen the imagery and stuff. And then I actually sat down and read the book and I'm like, wow, I totally dig this. And I cannot believe this is what it's actually about. Cause this is not what, mm-hmm. how people were interpreting it. Cause it's, it's very difficult to summarize Lolita outside of saying this is about a, a sexual predator, like mm-hmm. a, a grooming and abusing a young girl because yeah. Like, it's through his perspective. Like, that's the entire point, that you see him doing this, and he's justifying it to the reader. Um, so if people see themselves in it, like, is that difficult? Good, it fucking should be difficult. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, like, the fact that, it, even though it's from his perspective, you can clearly see how pathetic he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, from the way that people talk about Lolita, it's like, oh, no, it's about a guy totally, and the sexy chick who seduces him. <laughs> Oh my god mm. um no no it's not god it even had stuff about how like well she wasn't a virgin though like like was <laughs> it's like that doesn't make it any better no that that's what's so amazing about it i mean it's like this perfect right. summation of this kind of like women hating sexual abusers mentality the entitled abusive men right. he just he nailed it it was such a perfect representation of that and yeah, all the focus went on the little girl, liking yeah. little girls, and it's like, that, that that's so terrifying to me. It's how I feel about Mad Men, that, like, Mad Men as a show was perfectly fine. I, I had trouble watching it, like, I couldn't get very far because it was too depressing to me, I couldn't take it. Same. But, like, the audience reaction to it, where they're like, man, Don Draper is so cool, I'm like, what?! Like, I'm so like, disturbed. Oh, man, I missed yeah. the 60s. The 60s was so great. It's like, no, it wasn't. Oh, fucking, yeah, right. are we watching the same show? And it's something you can't 
control for. You know, when you write these kinds of edgy stories, that's going to come up. You know, like that's, that's reader, what do they call it? Reader reception theory and stuff. But right. it gets to a point where it becomes very clear where our biases are in mm -hmm. who's publishing these things, who's talking about these things, the media focused around it. And I think a lot of it is based around like, you know, excuse me for generalizing, but like basically, at least in the United States, men's fear of being told they're creepy or weird or, or you know, abusers, you know, like they're so scared yeah, of being accused of that. Yeah, that they're bad people. Right. But like, how, how can we discuss what's separate? It's like those people who, who are so scared yeah, that they're going to be accused falsely of rape. Like, that this this fear consumes them that they're like oh my god what if i accidentally had sex with a girl and she didn't want it it's like if you had any kind of self-awareness and like if you were trained to have self-awareness you would know the huge fucking difference between having a girl who wants to have sex with you and having sex with a girl who who doesn't want to have sex with you like mm -hmm. they're not taught to analyze themselves with any kind of nuance they're told that it's like well you know they're bad guys you know there's monsters and there's good guys and there's like when bad things happen, well, was it the woman's fault? What was she doing? She couldn't have been innocent. You know, like, they always kind of have to mitigate it, where it's like, no, maybe your best friend is a rapist. Like, this happens mm -hmm. to people. And I think women are trained a lot more to look inside themselves and say, what's wrong with you? Because, you know, we do blame women for, like, everything. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a real disservice to men. Uh, so I don't want this to be, like, a huge rant about <laughs> this. <laughs> but I do think that when we talk about this kind of, these these series where there's, like, the torture porn, the, the 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 tragedy porn and stuff, you do see these coming out of male stories a little bit more. The the unthinking kind of titillation over like abusing a girl or something, because I think that unlike the shoujo tradition, like there's not a tradition there of analyzing that, of take tearing it apart and saying why are you writing this? Like not just because mm -hmm. it's something you feel like writing, as opposed to incredibly introspective tradition in shoujo because when shoujo does something fucked up and believe me it does sometimes in way more fucked up ways than shonen does it does mm -hmm. it on purpose like yeah. it wants you to be like look how fucked up this is process that how you choose you know like as yeah. opposed to shonen where it's like whoa this is fucked up why isn't anybody talking about how fucked up this is <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think going back to your your madman thing like the interesting thing about Mad Men for me is it's Don Draper's struggle to be a good person. Mm -hmm. And you don't know if he's ever going to make it because he's such a fucking mess. <laughs> so like, yeah. if you're if you're idealizing him as like, oh, wow, he's so cool and suave and good at his job, you're like, no. I mean, he <laughs> is, but at the detriment to like every other aspect of his life. Yeah. And like yeah. when other, you know, when his life starts going well, then he fucks up his job. That's what makes that an interesting story is not how cool Don Draper is and how many women he gets to sleep with. It's how much can of a he stop lying to everybody? Can he be yeah. honest with himself yeah. and treat women as human beings other than like, and not as a sort of conquests in different ways. And, you know, I think it's a testament to John Hamm as an actor and, and the writers in general is the fact that they make that struggle so compelling. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, this is another AMC show that I think struggles with the same thing, which is Breaking Bad. It's like, I was about to bring you're not Breaking supposed Bad. to think that he's a hero by the end of that <laughs> yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good show about character sadism too. Yeah, so. seriously. <laughs> poor Jesse. And, poor, poor Jesse. <laughs> oh God, I love Jesse so much. But yeah, it's you know two characters who react to a bad situation in different ways, and and Jesse's trying to become a good person, sort of. Um, in his like weird, awkward Jesse way, and then you know Walt just 
eventually goes off the deep end and like can't mm-hmm. be a good person. Yeah. yeah. The, literally the only way they could kind of make him seem like almost a good guy was have him fight neo-Nazis. That was like, how far <laughs> he had fallen. That the only people more awful than Walter White were neo-Nazis. Mm. I will say that I think the difference between the critical reception of Mad Men versus Breaking Bad is I think Breaking Bad more people built it was billed more as this is fucked up. Like when the average person, like let's say on entertainment television or something, That's true. was talking about Mad Men, they were talking about the fashion and John Hamm yeah. is so handsome. And in Breaking Bad, they're like, "Wow, this is a powerful dark performance from uh, what's his name, Brian Cranston." Brian. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I think that Breaking Bad was one of the few dark shows I'd seen, except for maybe like Walking Dead is another one where I feel like we're yeah. finally starting to see people explain that this is a complicated difficult series to watch uh, game of right. thrones is actually the way that's built too like nobody's saying let's go casually watch some game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> let us go merrily watch game of thrones yeah and yeah. i hope i hope that that means that there is an evolution of now that we're kind of in the golden age of scripted tv that there's an evolution of how we discuss these almost like a preface what kind of a show it is not boiling right. it down to the most marketable aspects but actually taking it as a whole that is morally complicated and difficult. Um, and even right. though these shows are problematic in different ways, like you'd said about Game of Thrones, that at least we're acknowledging that this is messed up. Like, that's a really important right. thing to say. This is a messed up show about messed up people. As long as you open with that, like, that takes so much of the pressure off, I think, because that's what bothers me when I see things that are... I, I do... We're, like, we were joking about how to name this this podcast like sadism and fiction or blah 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 because i think it's very important to establish that we're trying to talk about a particular kind of emotional trauma that is dealt with with agency and that is intended to be cathartic and not like titillating i mean it might be for some people but we're not doing it to it's not the sole purpose of the scene exactly uh and, and but honestly everybody's quick factor is different i know that there was the Tokyo Demon's readership is very small, but I, it kind of goes in and out in terms of the response that I get. And there was this point where at the end of book two, kind of all the comments dropped off. And I later learned that like a lot of people had to take a break from it. It was too stressful. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but they were like, it's just, I couldn't, when I found out what happened and then things like the end of book two was pretty bad. I mean, it's a trilogy. So the down, the second book is always a down, ends on a down note. Yeah, it's, it's your Empire Strikes Back of serialized fiction. <laughs> yeah, and I think also there was a little bit of the sexual abuse had kind of come up and it was implied that there was going to be more uh, and mm-hmm. whether or not it was going to be on screen and everything. And also book three is partially told through the, through the eyes of a, an abuser. Um, uh. So I can see why people were like, I gotta, I gotta step back. <laughs> Maybe too much. And, and I, it's hard to trust a creator to be able to handle that. And I think that there were some elements in there that I was told, like, you know, maybe put a trigger warning here, maybe put a trigger warning here, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that That's kind of the line that you walk when you choose to tell a story like this. And I think that's perfectly valid. There are people who are going to come in and say, no, I want all my shit to be happy. Like, I don't want this kind of, it's not cathartic for me. It's just stressful. Yeah. And totally fair. I mean, these are our, quite frankly, our personal squick levels. Um, I think that... As Lillian had said, there there's a a trend that there the this kind of emotional uh, suffering through shoujo and and like you said like some YA stuff for teenage girls and things that there's like a tradition of this that there's a little bit of a market because people are clearly reading it but that's not going to be for everyone anyway so <laughs> like 
Yeah, exactly. Um, especially during the whipping scenes and even during the hand washing scene, I had to put a bunch of trigger warnings. Mm, yeah. Just right. for abuse, because it's like the Margrave is just the skeeviest piece of he shit. Is <laughs> he is just the worst. I love it though. He's so terrible. <laughs> it's like hilarious how terrible he is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no. He like every time I write him, he gets worse and I'm like, "Jen, I need to stop. Jen, you need to stop." But he's like the villain, but, so it's it's kind of okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> Well, okay, he's the villain, but you well, his role gets complicated. I can imagine. Um, yeah, I was going to say, though, that, like, that's what I love about that scene with him and Beppe in the church is that... Him and Anton. Sorry, and Anton. Um, it's not, a, you, like, you don't feel sympathetic for him after it, but you're like, mm-hmm. so this guy's not just, like, a megalomaniac. He really does believe in whatever the fuck he's do- doing. So, and that's, it's a humanizing moment for him as well in some ways of, yeah, he's doing really terrible things, but... Boy, does he think he's doing the right thing. And, like, that's actually the sign of a good villain is that in their head, they're they're doing the right thing and that they're the yeah. hero of the story. Yeah. He's very he much the hero of his own story. Story. Yeah. Right. So I, I thought like, that was a really a great scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. glad. Thank you. Uh, so, Leanne, what's your favorite piece of, of sort of vaguely sadistic fiction? Pick your medium. Uh, oh, man, I just thought of a good one for me. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go first? Uh, so I, I was going to say Sarah Reese Brennan, who's a YA author, did a series. The first one's called The Demon's Lexicon. And I oh. think she's a real champion at putting characters in just terrible situations and then having them come out of it relatively intact. Mm-hmm. There's like Her books are full of feels. I, I really like her. But then I was like, you know what? I haven't read in a long time. <laughs> Moto Hagio's uh, A Cruel God oh Reigns. God. Oh my God, A Cruel God Reigns is the wow. trip. Okay. Okay. I taught so, myself Japanese reading A Cruel God Reigns. Damn. That, that's impressive because that's not an easy book to read. So basically, for anybody who doesn't know, Moto Hagio is, is one of the classic shoujo authors from the 1970s. She's still working today. Um, and this is a series she did in kind of the 90s, I think, like 80s into the 90s. And I collected it, I think it's like 10 volumes in bunko form, which are these kind of miniature, but like extra long bind up versions. I bought like one through three from Kino Kuniya on a whim, uh, like a on a weekend, like probably trend. seven or eight years now ago now. And I read them like in 48 hours, which is a lot of comics to read in a weekend in Japanese for me. Um, and handed it to Alexi Kirsch, who was sat next to me at work at the time, and now works at Viz. Um, and he blew through all of them. And then basically over the next two weeks, I just kept driving back to Kinokuniya and like picking up the next volumes because I couldn't put it down. Um, <laughs> but for those who don't know, the story of uh, Zankoku Nakami is uh, a kid named Jeremy who's growing up in the Boston suburbs um, with his, his widowed mother, um, basically falls into the hand of a child molester. So this guy courts his mother, marries her, takes them both off to England and what his mother thinks is this sort of happy fairy tale, you know, mm-hmm. romantic situation. And at the same time, behind her back, he's basically raping Jeremy and, like, physically abusing him. And by the end of the third volume, the book actually opens with the abuser's funeral. Um, so oh, you know that this nice. guy is a gone. Um, oh, but he, he actually doesn't die. He's not dead oh. at the beginning. Uh, it's his mother's it's, funeral. Oh, it's his mother's uh, funeral. That's right. Oh, she's that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. What a difference. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
I mean, he, he dies shortly thereafter for what okay. it's worth, but it's not like he has to go back and finish him off. Um, but basically, by the end of Volume 3, Jeremy's figured out that the only way to get out of this situation, which he's tried multiple times over the course of those books to, like, tell his mother the truth, but she won't believe him. He sort of tries to reach out to people and just fails. And uh, he basically engineers a car accident um, in order to kill his stepfather and unfortunately kills his mother in the process. And mm -hmm. so now we have this orphan kid who's a victim of child abuse and like the one person left in his family is his stepbrother his older stepbrother he he's got a stepbrother too but he's less of an issue um ian and ian knows that something's up but and suspects that jeremy sort of starts to suspect that jeremy was involved in in his father's murder um but doesn't really know the truth of the situation. And so it switches back and forth a little bit between their perspectives, but a lot of it's Ian trying to figure out what's going on. And again, Jeremy sort of trying to come clean with this abuse story. Um, and it proceeds for another seven volumes of like, you know, them working out their issues between each other. And like, they end up in a sexual relationship at one point, Jeremy ends up a drug addict at one point. So like, wow. it's very soap opera-ish when you kind of describe it that way, but there's this emotional intensity to it. Um, and, and it's Moto fucking Hagio. Oh my God. Yeah, the second half, you're really getting to the healing process of how one deals with the trauma of abuse. And, yeah. you know, Jeremy's in therapy. He's, he's sort of doing like group therapy, talking to other survivors and you know, trying to make friends that way. Um, is his relationship with Ian something that's healthy for either of them? Is that something that's like, can they grow into something that's semi-normal or is it always going to be sort of fucked up and weird? Um, mm. The answer is it's always going to be fucked up and weird. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you don't want to do that. Um, man, that yeah, sounds book, good. Oh, man, it's, it's, it's absolutely so... amazing. Yeah. I don't read a lot of classic manga, but I think i got to dig up that it one. It is a roller coaster ride. And it's, it's yeah. something, like, in contrast to... The Song of Wind and Trees, which was by another classic author, uh, Takamiya Keiko, was, that was actually written in the 70s. That is a lot of the same kind of abuse elements, but they're done um, much more fetishistically. Um, yeah. it's, it's very much that kind of, that's, that's really a tragedy porn. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's worth reading and it's well done. There's lots of great characters. but uh, And it's archetypal too, which gives a little bit yeah. more of a pass. Right. Um, but no, that, and I think the contemporary setting for, and particularly because it's set partially in Boston, um, uh, which is where I grew up. So like they, you know, the first time Jeremy is forced to have sex with his stepfather is on Cape Cod. They take this like day trip. Uh -huh. um, oh no, is it Cape Cod? It might be, uh, it might be Salem. It's, it's one or the other. It's they Salem. Kind of end up it's it's Salem. Salem, the seaside yeah. resort. And uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, that's, that's, if I, if I want to like, punch myself in the heart for 10 volumes straight um can't do better than motohagio <laughs> yeah look it's a trip like my japanese comprehension is like only around 50 60 percent but i kept reading it it's just and holding yeah. my head in my hands <laughs> yeah, it's actually wow. funny because heart of thomas has been published in english which again mm -hmm. is you know one of her books from the 70s mm -hmm. and also deals with with sexual abuse um and that that feels kind of like a warm up for Zankoku Nakami. So I, I think everybody should go out there and read Heart of Thomas, and mm -hmm. then go learn Japanese so you can read <laughs> Zankoku Nakami because it's yeah. never going to get yeah. translated. Yeah, probably so. not. 
Um, and Thomas is also, in its own way, is kind of like a more restrained Kaze Toki no Uta. Yeah. So. It is. It is. They're both kind of explorations of that kind of like fictionalized European schoolboy situation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But again, Takemiya Keiko goes for the, the soap opera and, and uh, uh, Moto Hagio goes for emotional realism. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. so um, not critiquing either one. I think they're both brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I've met both of them too, which is the other crazy oh, goodness. thing. Wait, when did you meet? Um, you met, I know you met Moto Hagio at a show. You met yeah, Keiko Takamiya at too? Comic-Con. I've met her That's twice, so cool. actually. Damn. Um, amazing. Because she, she's, she's a, a manga scholar now. So she works at, I think it's like, uh, Kyoto University, maybe, and sort of their manga oh, yeah. program. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I think she came over here Kyoto. to do a, uh, a book signing when uh, Vertical was publishing. I don't remember if it was Teda A or whether it was Andromeda Stories. And so she did a little like US kind of tour. And so this is when I was still at Tokyo Pop, and we we had uh, lunch at, <laughs> at Marie Calendars, I think. <laughs> so it was like That's me so and, cool. and Takamiya Keiko and her editor, or whoever was her guide. At the Damn, time. Lily, you've so, been around. <laughs> <laughs> I and I want to say I, I ran into her like somewhere else at some point. So um, wow. I don't even remember what we talked about. That's the worst thing. It's like <laughs> oh, no. I don't think I'd read much of her stuff at that point. So mm. like I knew she was important, and I had a really good conversation with her. But like, um, yeah, at that point I hadn't read Teta A yet, so I, I didn't, I couldn't contribute to that as much as I wished I could have. Mm. So well, a lot of that stuff, yeah, that was was hard to get. Uh, at least in English. I mean, your Japanese is excellent, so that doesn't really stop you. But yeah, I'm probably at the 75% range. There's a couple different series that I really liked. Um, Hands Off, which is a tiny manga that no one's heard of, but now you can oh, get digital yeah. through Viz, was a really <laughs> strong influence on Tokyo Demons because it's about sad psychic boys touching each other. Um, but that was a little bit more of a logistic, um, like like the, the logistics of psychic powers and boys being sad about it was really inspirational for, I mean, that was the first thing that Leanne and I worked together on, by the way, if anyone was curious. Cause I took over as editor at volume two or three, I think. Yeah. Something like that. But as far as like inspirations for fucked upness, uh, I like psychosexual elements in a lot of my fucked up media and, uh, boys love is a really great place to find that. And I find like a lot of the, you know, the, in the history of boys' love, it was kind of tragedy porn in the 80s. Um, in the 90s, it started getting a little bit more happy. Uh, and then kind of 2000 plus, I found that there's some really great mangaka out there who kind of consistently deal with layered, dark issues. I mean, Fumi Yoshinaga is a, like, her stuff isn't super dark. It's definitely layered. Um, I like how she kind of explores uh, characters and sort of angst, um, especially angst that uh, you know, I think about like Gerard and Jacques, which is a series that I really love. Yeah, that really was one of the first BL comics I ever read. Oh, it's got a rough opening scene. <laughs> oh, no. It, yeah, it does. Um, have you read the Antique Bakery Dojinshi that she did? Yes, yes I have. <laughs> Boy, yes. have I spent a lot of money collecting those. <laughs> yes, and they are, they are kind of amazing in how they... Yeah. They, They're ruthless. They are, yep. And because yeah. Antique Bakery, you could tell she was kind of like, okay, I'm going to be mainstream. Mainstream, like slapping her wrist, like mainstream. <laughs> uh, and then she did the doujinshi and she's like, feel free to ignore all of these. Like, I'm really sorry about them. And you read them. You're like, oh, God, everything goes to shit. And it's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I'm also a big fan of Yoneda Ko, who oh, kind of. Oh, Yoneda Ko is really good. Yeah. She sort of ducks her head in and out of the boys love industry. Uh, 
she had she has a series running right now that's in English that I think the English version the title is Twittering Birds Never Fly, which yeah, is something like that about a masochistic uh, yakuza head and his impotent former cop bodyguard. Uh, my friend just recommended that to me. Yesterday, oh my god, <laughs> it's so messed up and it's amazing, especially since. Most of it is told through the point of view of the masochistic Yakuza head, who's kind of a ruthless guy who was mm-hmm. abused by, again, like a stepfather or something for many years. Um, who And then his stepfather eventually lost interest in him because his stepfather was a pedophile. And he's like, mm. oh, I'm not he getting attention anymore. Yeah, like, oh, it, but he knew how fucked up that was. And he's like, well, this is yeah. me, though. So I'll find a way to do it. And then he starts banging Yakuza when he's like a teenager and eventually becomes a Yakuza. Um, and it's him dealing with this, this ex-cop who basically went lost, you know, used to be a cop and then went to jail because he found that like somebody had been raping his sister or something and he like killed them and then he went to jail or beat him up or something. I think it was his dad. Yeah. His dad was raping his sister. Yeah. It was an, yeah. Cause I think the sister was adopted or something. And anyway, it was. <laughs> Cause that just makes it so much better. Then it's just fine. No, but I think we're that gonna need had... like ten trigger yeah. warnings for this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, but right. It, but it was even more complicated <laughs> than that because like his sister was in love with him, and he's like, "But I only see you as sister," and she's like, "But right. we're not blood related." Also, your father is raping me, and I can't tell you. And like, anyway, so this guy went right. off the rails, and then it's like, no one will hire me now that I'm, you know. I was a cop who got arrested and went to jail. So he's like, I'll work, I guess I'll work for the Yakuza. And the sister's like, please don't work for the Yakuza. And is trying to appeal to this masochistic Yakuza head. Anyway, it's amazing. It's totally messed up. Um, It has a little bit of, I I feel like it has a little rotating perspective. Um, She started it with a a story called Don't Stay Gold, uh, which was Mm. kind of about his friend, which was a little bit more like sexy Yakuza and gang members Mm -hmm. banging and stuff. But she was sort of setting the stage for the story that I think she wanted to tell. Um, But it's messed up in a lot of ways because it also has Yakuza elements in there. So without spoiling it, somebody cuts off their own finger at some point when something goes bad. And there's like, you know, it's incredibly violent. Um, It's very different from her series, which in English I think was called No Touching at All, which is just like kind of a sad modern love story but i really love twittering birds i know like in japan it's uh there's a lot of popular fandom behind it she kind of i think took a break from it for a while but um really great drama series off of it as well i I like her i like her stuff a lot i think it explores a lot of things um that kind of in that realm Uh, same thing with asumiko uh nakamura oh i was about to talk about her too she's really good all about jay is one of the most fucked up manga i've ever read also copernicus no kokyu oh i haven't read that Um, one is it fucked up (laughs) oh it's fucked up it's about uh, a circus in paris in the 70s oh god (laughs) and um all about jay and um there's a side story to that, which I forgot the name of. Yes, I forget the name of it too because I own it, but I, I had a lot of trouble reading her stuff. It didn't have Photogana. And for a long time, they were like, we're not bringing her over. She's too weird. Even though she wrote the most perfect schoolboy manga ever called Dokusei, yeah, which yeah. is getting animated God, in like a Dokusei. movie. Yeah. And they're so actually going to release the movie stateside in select theaters. That's what I Wait, heard. Really? Yeah, what? I know. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, they're going to play Dokusei. <laughs> stateside they should because that there's nothing fucked up about that series with the one exception being there's a teacher who's kind of perving on the students but not that much and he knows it's bad and he keeps slapping his wrist and it's he knows it's bad yeah it's kind of played up for humor um Um, as terrible as it is except when 
fantasizes yeah. about feeding one of them an, like a, a fried egg. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I gotta stop, Which man. Which is like my favorite scene in that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, okay. If we're still oh. talking about sadistic BL mangaka, <laughs> um, this is real hardcore. This is real hardcore. I'm just All gonna right. preface that, okay? And like, but have you heard of Harada? No, I haven't. I don't oh, think so. Uh, um, well, well <laughs> <laughs> so she's definitely, or their work, um, I don't know what their gender is, but they are definitely more similar to like the hardcore Nakamura Asamiko mm-hmm. stuff. That's really disturbing and really hardcore. Yeah. But um, oh. Harada, like Harada's stuff is, it's so unapologetic. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it has no illusions about itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it doesn't try to romanticize abuse huh. at all. It just presents it like it is. So it, on it's definitely meant to be titillating, but it's such mm-hmm. it's so openly like honest about how messed up it is that it's almost refreshing. But definitely <laughs> don't read Harada if you don't have the stomach for really like messed up stuff. Like I can't. Yeah, it's. It's really, really messed up. <laughs> is all I'll say. They're really her- new. Like their oldest series looks like 2013. Yeah. No, she's really. Pro- they're really wow. prolific. They're really. Um, but their paneling is gorgeous, and I wish I could share samples of their paneling. <laughs> but you can't, right? <laughs> but I can't. Not safe for home. <laughs> yeah. Not safe for anywhere. Interesting. Huh. I will definitely have to check that out. Like, that's going to be hard to find stateside. Oh, no, that's a CL series. She's got a CL series. What? <laughs> Wait, which one yeah. is? Yeah. Color series? Recipe. Oh, yeah, that's, but, that's their most, uh, I guess, I, least. That's one of their more mainstream yeah. works. <laughs> yeah, didn't like, like, didn't like Super Lovers run in CL? Or maybe not quite in no. CL. But Super Lovers is a mess. Oh, God, I love that. So. That's, uh, what's her name? Miyuki Abe? Oh, man. I feel like we talked about that on another podcast. The really adorable story about a kid raising, or a guy raising his, like, adopted brother that's, like, a family-friendly, happy story until, like, volume three. And then you're like, the fuck? And it's Actually, until volume two. And then it's like, wait, why is no one talking about how he's kissing his stepbrother? Like, someone should stop Uh. this. No one's reacting to this in a normal way. No, no. Huh. And that, that's uh, one of those less introspective shoujo slash boys yeah. love that I've read, which is partially why I couldn't look away from it. It was yeah. told in such an interesting way that it was mostly through dialogue. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't nearly the same kind of internal dialogue or self-awareness. It was just mm-hmm. kind of, these things are happening. Why is he kissing this little boy? Why is this little boy coming to him in the middle of the night and being like, I want to sleep in your bed? And he's like, you got to get out. And he's like, no. And like... Like, it, and a lot of it was through the perspective, sort of, like, you were supposed to relate to the little boy a lot, too. You're supposed to relate to both of them. This was not a cut-and-dried abuse situation. This is, like, part of it was this teenage boy who is going through puberty and having feelings about his older brother. And the older brother, who they established is really sexually fucked up to begin with, is like, yeah. uh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely one of the, uh, what I would consider a very interesting abuse story, even though it's almost not presented as abuse. It's just yeah, kind of a story. It's really surreal. Yeah. It's really surreal. 
but uh, returning to Harada, um, mm -hmm. so there's no legal way to read Harada in English, unfortunately, mm -hmm. at the moment. But one story of theirs that I do recommend is Yaji Rishi, called Arrow, mm -hmm. and it's just this really just brutal look at this abusive relationship in between two college age people. Mm -hmm. Like, it's about this guy, this straight guy who realizes that this kid has a crush on him. Like, this freshman, he's like a sophomore, mm -hmm. and just manipulates the hell out of this kid, and it never romanticizes it. He's just, it's just so upfront about like, oh, I'm just using you. It's more like horror. It comes off mm -hmm. less like BL and more like emotional horror. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it's framed as a horror story. Like the expressions that Harada draws are like meant to be horrifying. Like it, it feels like you're reading like if Junji Ito did BL. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pay like good not, money for that. Like not in terms of body horror, but in just terms of like emotional horror. Emotional horror. Psychological horror is an interesting genre. I think that, um, and again, there's sort of different traditions if it's like, like traditionally men writing or writing for men versus writing for women. Um, I think that it, it can be cathartic. Um, it can be interesting in, in the fact that it's dealt with a little bit differently. That it, you know, like we kept using the word like titillation, like it's a dirty word. And it, it is a lot of the time. But mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes instead of addressing things in a healthy way, just unblinking eyes at it, you know, like presenting it for what it is, is... An interesting way to explore these things. I mean, this stuff again, not for everyone. <laughs> yeah. It's harder, not for everyone. Yeah, like I'm just that sounds really, like my like, bag. <laughs> underline like bold letters, not for everyone. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's in store for Knights Errant without uh spoiling it? Yeah, can but you without spoiling anything? <laughs> <laughs> so that means I can only say about five words. <laughs> <laughs> there will be war. <laughs> yes. Well, things get complicated, think. but things get complicated is like so vague. Um, We're going to get to learn more about Will's past, not yep. immediately, but in the Definitely relatively not. near future, which I think mm -hmm. there's going to be some real surprises in there. Um, yep. Stuff that um, I think you, you only even vaguely hinted at in the, the sort of first incarnation. So oh, yeah, I think like we're going to get a lot more about that. The reboot definitely touches more immediately on Wilfred's stuff way quicker. Um, yep. What else? The next chapter should be fun. It'll be the first chapter that Wilfred narrates. Mm. Yep. So this will be the first time we are completely in Wilfred's head. <laughs> oh, what a fun place that must be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which um, is part of why I think we agreed that we should end volume one after chapter three is that if we're going to have a perspective switch, it kind of makes sense to do that with a new chapter. Mm -hmm. So or new, a new volume. Um, the Margrave's role is going to get more complicated because as you see, there are people who want him alive and people who really don't want him alive at all. The opposite of alive, dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. People are very, he's very polarizing in terms of people who want him alive and people who want him dead. Yeah. Yeah. And even the people who want him alive don't want him alive because they like him. Yeah. So there's um, going to be a, a lot more of that push and pull with that. There's a lot of bad decisions coming up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Bad decisions. So for, for different reasons. 
Kadeen will get his time to shine. I know yes, some people Kadeen. are worried that he's Kadeen. been delegated, like relegated to a side character, but he hasn't. He's just, he's biding his time. He's waiting for it. Yeah. I hope his sexual misadventures come back too. <laughs> oh, uh, Yeah, that's a good point. We need to, we need more sexual misadventures, Jen. <laughs> May I spoil a slight thing? <laughs> yeah, I think go for it, yeah. People can choose to shut off the podcast. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Kadeen will have some sexual misadventures with Pepe. Holy shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> and Anton. Oh my god. <laughs> I hope at the same time that that's an okay, that's my head cannon now. I don't know if that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> like the thing I don't think Night's Aaron is ever gonna be that sexual, but there's definitely tension between the three of them. Nice. Kadeen's, Kadeen's like, oh, okay, this is fine i guess and they're like and he's like wait how old are you guys anyway and they're like oh 19 and 20 and he's like i'm 10 years older than you okay oh. that's fine all right <laughs> wow Pepe is 19 or 20 is he the older one he's 20 anton is a baby oh my god oh, but like by medieval standards they're like yeah grown oh. ass men <laughs> oh my god that sounds so good <laughs> So Leanne, what do we have in store for Tokyo Demons? What can you tell us without spoiling anything or spoiling too much? The main Tokyo Demons series is almost over. We have a couple updates. And actually, at this point, most of the really horrible stuff is over. <laughs> the ending's got to be kind of happy, um, with the exception of uh, uh, Toya's life is terrible now, but he deserves it, so it's okay. The second series, Tokyo Ghosts, which happens five years later. I'm not sure when we're going to debut that or in what form, but... The other day on Twitter, I spoiled a small thing that I think I can probably say here, but the first chapter of Tokyo Ghosts is Joe trying to save a failing marriage, like his failing marriage. Okay. Um, because I think that, especially since the original series was about, oh, you know, coming of age and things are terrible and, you know, everybody's sad and crying or whatever. Um, I wanted the second series where they're actually like 20-ish, so they're like adults, young adults. Oh, that'll but, be fun. <laughs> yeah, like... They're partially because there were so many sexual complications when they were teenagers, and also Tokyo Demons takes place over like eight weeks, so it's a really kind of tight time frame where they're all like making out with each other, and they're like, whoa, whoa, I barely know you, that I wanted a pretty big time skip to see kind of how they, what kind of adults they turn into. Um, so their problems are very different. They're still, still going to be that tradition of kind of people agonizing over problems, but they're very different problems when you become a young adult. And in the case of someone like Joe, who, I mean, a a fair amount of this was in his Cherry Bomb backstory, so maybe not everybody's read that. Um, he has really messed up ideas about family. This is like a slight spoiler, but like when he was young, he accidentally impregnated someone, and he was really conflicted about that. The girl did not have the baby, but he was like a kid when this happened, like way too she young. She was quite to be a bit older, wasn't she? Wasn't that no. like his first girlfriend? No, his oh, first girlfriend mind. was his age. They were basically like 12 year olds in foster care whose foster mother died, oh, okay. and then they had sex. And it was terrible. And his next girlfriend was older, and that was a whole kind of separate thing that he was dealing with. But he was really conflicted about that baby that was lost because he's looking for family and stuff. So I really like the idea that a person who was messed up like that and then went through all the stuff that happened in Tokyo Demons, when they come out the other side, that there would be this conflict being like, I kind of want to build a family. Maybe I'll get married super young and it'll be a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, or like uh. that that kind of element. Um especially since one of the bigger themes of the series is sort of found family, because a lot of these kids don't really have family. Some of them have like a sister or, a, you know, a long lost uncle or whatever. They're all kind of dealing with different things, but he had a little bit more, his is more directly in trouble at that point. 
and and ghosts is really like the stakes get pretty high in that although they're very different it's 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 really hard to describe it has to do with kind of where joe and isa both come from because they have these kind of weird supernaturally backgrounds joe is a little bit more complicated it's not quite supernatural but and it goes into things like who are you what do you want what is family to you um, and even though they have this sort of found family through what's already happened it still takes work and they're also conflicted about like well now i can start my own family or you know if i have other members of other family members who either show up or or you know i better connect with if i go seek down that cousin that you know i liked when i was a kid maybe maybe we should be hanging out or whatever like what does that do to the people your found family you know like what's the difference between blood and 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 not blood you know being connected by experiences and I would say that, like, of all the Tokyo Demons arcs, because there's basically three arcs, Tokyo Demons, Tokyo Ghosts, Tokyo Ghosts, and Tokyo Angels, I always like Tokyo Ghosts the best, because I think that cusp of adulthood, the ages between, like, 18 and 22, kind of college age, are, like, the most fascinating thing to explore in fiction, because I don't feel like they're explored much at all. There's this, like, fetishization of puberty and mm. teenagers, and then there's, like, this whole thing about, like, jaded adults. But all the stuff that takes place in college is, like, porkies, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah. it's like sex comedies and whatever when that is like a fucking hard time in anyone's life where they're yeah. between childhood and adulthood they're expected to know a lot of things or different people you talk to will be like oh you're an adult now and other people like you're still clearly just a kid and it really depends who you're around or how you feel about yourself and also all the you know sexual messes and tokyo demons that like, I didn't want to push too many people to have sex or, or whatever because they're still kids and then they didn't know really what they wanted. In Ghost, they've had a long time to ruminate that. And there's definitely interbanging. And then people who are like, you know, I'm interbanging, yeah. And then they're like, no, I'm, I'm not banging anyone in this group anymore. I'm going to bang other people. Extra banging. Extra banging. <laughs> External banging. And then people who are like, I refuse to bang now or in the future or ever again, whatever the case is. They all have kind of different issues. But, but sex is something that they're dealing with more directly. Again, because 18, 18 to 22 is such a fascinating age, they're all at very different levels, comfort levels in terms of sex. There's one character who will not be named who is like actually super promiscuous at this point because he's going through a thing. And there's other people who are like, uh, you know, I've never had sex with anyone and I'm not sure I ever will. And then people who are dealing with sexual trauma and all that stuff. So the psychosexual angle is really strong there uh, in that whole series and then tied into identity and family and stuff. So... I guess the suffering will be different. It will be a little bit less like, oh God, what am I going to do? I'm just a kid. And more just like, oh, I can't get my shit together. What's wrong with me? Which I think will be a fun, different kind of emotional trauma. Maybe a little less dark than demons. I don't know. The Things get pretty bad in ghosts, so I can't promise anything in terms of things. Are <laughs> but I think this is something I actually meant to address kind of earlier in, in the podcast, but I, maybe it sort of works as summary is like, Part of the reason why you have characters go through that kind of suffering is to make them grow mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. to make them change. Um, not that suffering should drive characterization necessarily, but there is the process of becoming a different person and the process of moving through a narrative, whether it's in fiction or in reality. Like, there's things in that that hurt, and and mm -hmm. you know that's part of what makes a story interesting. It's it's part of what gives people that challenge that's a certain level of suffering and it can be everything from the very external and the very literal to the much more metaphorical and, and kind of internal, but that's, it's crucial to that. Like if it's a story where just everybody's happy all the time, you don't really have a story. You just have like, hmm. I don't know, happy pornography basically. Yeah. Like, 
sunlight Cheerful porn. porn. Which is great for like, you know, a one shot fanfic, but like, you know, if you're if you're have an ongoing narrative, then you need things to force your characters to evolve. So um, you need conflict. You just... <laughs> oh god, yeah, yes. you need conflict. So and I think having the conflict be internal in some ways and coming from a, a place of emotion and a place of, of feeling and introspection, it's a difficult thing to achieve in a lot of ways because we're so used to conflict being an external factor. Yeah. Um, and so the suffering is a little bit of a shorthand to kind of get you there. But when used well, it's extremely effective. So that's my summary of, of the last 90 minutes of us <laughs> talking. <laughs> mm. Yeah, people who are shaped by their experiences that happened in the storyline, I think is really important and really interesting things. And I think that's also why a lot of us, when we were younger, we didn't watch as many sitcoms or like American cartoons because they didn't have that kind of building story the way that, you know, fantasy novels or comic books or um, mm -hmm. anime and manga and stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, comic books are a little bit like circular, right? Like <laughs> they keep reading. There's a status quo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So watching people who have been traumatized or, or, or went through these difficult things then move on and then what kind of person are they now? Like that that's really interesting to me. And I think that's something Knights Errant does really well. Um, that's something I've been trying to do in Tokyo Demons and a lot of actually a lot of the Sparkler stuff has got a good element of that because we always seek down stories that have really good characters and relationships and stuff. And I think most of our creators are excellent at that, that they kind of know that you can't just have all this stuff happen to a person like it's it's going to change them and that's mm. what's that's what yeah. the story is right like this person yeah. is evolving and there's a plot line around them hopefully <laughs> although you know not always you don't always if it's a character drama you don't need much plot but how are they going to come out the other side of this trial and anton and beppe's case it'll be an ordeal <laughs> yeah and they're going to bang kadeen <laughs> apparently like i'm so excited <laughs> oh no kadeen's going to bang them Oh, God. <laughs> you are killing me, Jen. Oh, God, I need it now. <laughs> I mean, whether I show it in the comic or not. Is you should show thing. it in the comic. <laughs> or do like a doujinshi. Yeah, I was going to be like, that's what Cherry Bomb is for. Oh, folks. God, yeah. We <laughs> I forgot. We plus side stories. Oh, no. We planned for this eventuality, <laughs> knowing we were all perverts. Right. Eventually come to that. <laughs> Excuse the pun. What's really tragic about me is that I'm a pervert, but like I'm so embarrassed to show people porn <laughs> that I've drawn. Like whenever I show anything even vaguely pornographic that I've drawn to anyone else, I'm like, I'm going to leave the room now and I'm going to be screaming in the other room so I can't hear any verbal comments you make while you look at this. <laughs> so even if the comment is like a high pitched shriek of, of joy and delight. Yes, I have just... to be. Sh oh, okay. I have to cancel it out with my own panicked shrieking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Digitally, Fair enough. It's, I'm more okay with it, but even uh -huh. then, I can't show it on like on a wide level. So. <laughs> can you show it to like me? Like, is there things you can send me <laughs> yeah, right yeah, now? I can show it to like <laughs> individuals. Oh my can god! You can you show me these things, Jen? That you're implying. Oh my god. Slips, well, <laughs> slips the porn under your door and runs away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that's uncommon. I think that it's very easy to talk a big game and then about porn. And then when you write something like a sex scene and you give it to someone, it's like, it is really, it can feel really personal. 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say that there's there's literally kind of an intimacy with that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I assume, having not written very much erotica myself, but, like, you're basically expressing some of your own desires through that in some way. Uh, I think even more than sort of in a typical kind of romance scene is that this is really, like, the end of, of what you're going for. Oh, um, Urasawa has something hilarious to say about that. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. <laughs> Please, interrupt with Kurosawa anytime. Uh, oh, Urasawa, who did Monster in 20th Century Boys. Oh, um, right. He was talking with Inio Asano, um, who did Nijigahara Holograph. Yeah. And, um, and they were talking about the character designing and how when Asano did uh, Solanin, uh, they were like, I gave them freckles. And then everyone was like, oh, you have a fetish for girls with freckles, don't you? And they were like, no, I just <laughs> wanted to draw them with freckles. And then Urasawa was like, but, well, whenever we design anything, it's a statement of fetish. <laughs> and yeah. then he went on to say the reason he didn't like drawing cute girls a lot was that people would immediately assume that was the kind of girl he liked. Mm. So uh -huh. he was like, so that's why I don't draw many cute girls. <laughs> And Asana was like, that is such a seinen mangaka thing to say. Yeah, that really is. <laughs> but I like that, though, because I think in a funny way that that forces Urasawa to be a lot more creative with his female character design. Oh, yeah. Because his women, I think, are very attractive and interesting, but they're all very different. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's, there's diversity to his female characters, which is not the case with a lot of other seinen mangaka. So. I'd even say that about Asano. Personally, uh -huh. I actually don't think there's much. They're like personality wise, there's a lot of variety in Asano's like female characters and male characters. Yeah. But design wise, it's like, oh, I think I have an idea of what <laughs> you're attracted to. Well, you know, and there's nothing yeah. inherently really wrong about that if you I, I know. If you Especially work with, with me too. <laughs> oh well yeah, I mean like I can again, I think some of this is them being afraid of being labeled something. <laughs> Um, right. And also, I mean, people are going to read into your work and say, like, oh, is this your thing? And usually it's like, well, that's a little my thing. Like, usually you put a little of yourself in everything. Um, I think it's very clear, though, when there's an artist who is a slave to their fetish. Like, you can totally see when people are just bending over backwards to put the same kinds of scenes, the same kinds of girls, the same kind of angles or whatever in their work. And you're like, okay, this is uncomfortable. Like, I can yeah. see that you're you're so obsessed with this that it's the t detriment of your storytelling or it's offending the audience or whatever the case is. Um, <laughs> cough, berserk, cough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I think that if we taught people to have a little more self-awareness, especially again, men, because I think they're, they're not conditioned to, to analyze this stuff with in depth that if you, if you have self-awareness, you know where that line is. Like, I think it's some of my, you know, one of my favorite mangaka is Michiaki Watanabe, who did The Violinist of Hamelin, which is still one of my favorite manga of all time. And it was clear to me that his main female character, well, sort of secondary main female character, um, Sizer, he was kind of using as his, like, pretty girl. So he'd have all these, for a comic that's a really strange, like, incredibly violent comedy, uh, for lack of a better way to describe this incredibly weird manga, um, he would have all these, like, beautiful poses of her kind of, like, in the shower or whatever. Not, like, fetishy, but, like, he was doing these beautiful pinups. And I was like, I think he might be a little in love with her. And, like, it was kind of charming because it wasn't to the detriment of what he was telling at all. It just, like, all of a sudden it's like, I think maybe she's his favorite character. And he kind of loves her a little bit. And it was sort of cute. Um, and, and that, 
I, I think that, that sound cute. yeah, like it, I feel like sometimes you can get a little insight into the creator like that, and they're so scared that that's going to make them vulnerable or look like a pervert. When it's like, no, that's that's kind of sweet to know who your favorite character is. Uh, famously, you want to say his favorite favorite character for Shigugi was Nakago, the uh, villain, and mm-hmm. um, she would talk about that a lot. Like she was kind of in the side notes and stuff, and she'd be like, I just want him to like. <laughs> do stuff and have wacky adventures and there's like a couple parts where he, he like licked tamahome at some point and she's like yeah this is awesome and but like it i don't like a preface to sakuragari or something oh god sakuragari oh yeah if, oh, wow. for anybody who thinks you want to say is book. not messed up read sakuragari and you'll be like whoa she let it all out in one comic huh yeah <laughs> like she there are no there's no curtain here no my god <laughs> and since she always has one guy who looks like tamahome Seeing that guy doing these things was really upsetting when I when I read it the first time. I, I'm not a big Sakuragari fan. It was too much even for me. Yeah, I did. I couldn't finish it, and I just wrecked Harada like 20 minutes ago. So I, I really like Sakuragari, but I'm also a real sucker for Taisho romance. So I was like, I might not have gotten through it if it wasn't for the time period. So <laughs> I would not call that a romance. <laughs> no, it's it's yeah. Not literally romance. Yeah. <laughs> the romance of the Taisho period, okay. not a Taisho romance. <laughs> That's fair. When you're burning each other's houses down, like, I, I wouldn't call that necessarily a love story, but... Uh, uh I was going to say that, like, the Bronte sisters would beg to differ, oh, but... Okay. Oh, okay. You got me. So, it's just, it's going oh, for the gothic. Oh, that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good point. You're welcome. Bringing, bringing the lit degree into the conversation. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I think you want to say acknowledging, I really like Nakago. And then when you would see these moments of Nakago where it's like, Nakago's getting laid and it's kind of weird. Or like, Nakago just did something really funny or weird or surprising. Knowing that she really liked him was kind right. of charming. And it really did not hurt the story at all. I thought Nakago was a layered character. but And he had kind of a, well, okay, this is technically a spoiler, but it was like 15 years ago. He had an interesting death scene that I think that a lot of villains don't really get. Um, I really liked the way he died. I thought it was it was cool. And it, you could see that she really tried with him. Um, but it didn't get in the way of what she was trying to do. So that's perfectly fair. But writing is personal. You know, writing and drawing is showing a little piece of yourself. So as long as you don't let it wreck your overall story arc or whatever, like, mm-hmm. it's okay to have a little bit of fetish in there. That If that's what gets you up in the morning to make the work, like, by all means. <laughs> yeah. God, it's it's so funny too because the second you said like fifteen year old manga death scene, I was like, oh my god, clamp. X nineteen ninety nine. Now there's a series for emotional sadists. Oh god, yeah, it's yeah. a good point. And actually, I think that that your your note about kind of the the emotionality of it and the the being honest about it relates to sort of clamp's current work and why I don't find it as compelling is that I feel like they've lost a little bit of that. I don't know, kind of originality in some ways. So, like honest, anyway. like like that yeah. honesty about how trashy they can be. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you gotta um, dwell in just the trash. Go back to people ripping eyeballs out and and yeah. being like, "I'm gonna eat your heart and all of that." Destroy and decap- the world and kiss your decapitated head. Oh God, exactly. that was so good. <laughs> And and the the whispers of you know not saying the thing that you never expected him to say, but the reader's never going to know what it is. Boy, was that a knife twist! <laughs> oh man, God, I kind of want to do wow. that now. <laughs> <laughs> what have something that you'll you'll never hear what it is they said? 
Yeah, but I'll right. always oh, yeah. know it because I wrote it. Oh, God. I've done but, that a bunch of times, except I didn't decide what they said. I, I think the fact that the reader didn't know. Because there was once or twice where there were a couple of lines where somebody trailed off or whatever. And one of the commenters was like, what did they say? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, it's up to you. Like, I don't well, really care. I did that too, but I kind of want to do that, like, on clamp level where it's like right before yeah. he dies, he whispers yep. in his ear sensually, what, but Something. what is it? You'll never but know. So good. Well, isn't that how... Um... That's like how my favorite ending is the, the Escaflone ending, where it's like the lovers who are separated over dimensions. Mm-hmm. So you're like, well, it's sort of happy because everybody lives, but it's sad because they can never be together. Oh, God. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that was too blue ballsy for me. They needed a kiss. I think that was too oh. cruel. They did need a but kiss. It, I'll agree with that. They get a kiss in, uh, in Golden Compass, the last book of that, before oh, they good. get separated between dimensions. So we're spoiling the hell out of so many things. It's amazing. This is a I great know. podcast. It's stuff that's like yeah. ten years old, though. Yeah. I feel like the the whatever the what's it called the statute of limitations has passed on this one. The statute of limitations. So, statute. It's, it's fifteen years. <laughs> fuck oh. you, Clamp. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've never Sanderson, met them, but I've been to their house. <laughs> so what? Yeah, Wait, what? I, I did. A, I did house? a licensing meeting at Clamp's house. Well, okay. Lillian, get around! I'm telling you. Like when I went yeah, to actually, her house. The best thing about that is that their licensing manager knew I was a really big fan, and we were in this really nice tatami room. It's like the nicest tatami room I've ever seen. It had this like they were woven in like a checkerboard pattern. It was beautiful. Wow. So I was admiring it, and he's like, you know, Nekota Sensei likes to take naps over there, and like pointed to the corner. <laughs> and I was like. Why are you telling me this? This is embarrassing. Just, like, just rolls on it and leaves your seat. Right. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to like go over there and like bow and scrape and grovel or something in the corner where Nekota-sensei sleeps. Gosh. So. The closest. Tokyo Pop. That was a good fucking time, man. That, yeah. was, that was a good six years. Weren't you like the guide for Maki Murakami when she was here and you're like, dude, you got to do more gravitation? I got to hang out with Maki Murakami um, at, at Otakon one year, which is a trip. She's a riot. I can so, imagine. And then, oh, so speaking of people who are ashamed of their porn, she brought me two of her doujinshi as like a little like, you know, oh omiyage. God. Oh, God. Her doujinshi is hardcore. Oh, She's gosh. So oh. Yeah. Especially like the, the mega mixes. Me like a yeah, the mega bag. mixes are like on another yeah. level. It's yeah. like still it the, the most explicit mixes. thing I've ever read in my life. So she handed me the two Mega Mixes in like a brown paper wrapper. And she's like, you're not allowed to look at these until you're back in your hotel room. <laughs> she's not wrong. Okay. Yeah, no. she's not wrong. But then I made her sign one for me the next day. So That's so charming, though. I love when, I love when yeah. people who draw really dirty stuff are like super shy about it. Yeah. Because so I like, empathize with that. It wasn't the last licensing meeting I went to in Japan, but it's probably the second to last. I was at, we were at the Gintosha offices, and I brought her, because she likes stuff that's like creepy cute, the Kimo Kawaii, that was like oh, yeah. the big theme of our trip to, to Baltimore. And so I found one of those lollipops at a gas station that has like a scorpion inside. And so I bought it, and I gave it to her editor as like, here, give this to Murakami-sensei, because I think she'd like it. And he's like, yes, she would. <laughs> Then he gets me on the phone with her up in Hokkaido, and he's like, can you yell at her to turn in her pages? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sitting there in, like, the Gentosha editorial office being like, hey, Murakami-sensei, it's been, like, I don't know, three years. How's it going? Turn in your fucking pages. <laughs> so. They'll use any means necessary to get those pages. It didn't work. <laughs> She's Aww. like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And we never got the chapter of Gravitation, so. You did the one book, did, right? But... Gravitation EX that was simulpub. Yeah, and... we did like one volume. And then there was like, I think maybe another chapter or two that she did after that. Mm. So, and then 
at that point, I think Tokyo Pop had collapsed anyway, so it was irrelevant, but wow, good times. <laughs> that sounds wild. Okay, you want to wrap up? Sure. <laughs> On that note, uh, I don't even know how to conclude this. <laughs> so... We for all, like, really messed up fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For all of your emotional sadism needs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of the a lot of the Sparkle audience is here for that. Um, we were discussing shortly before the podcast began that we've been expanding our repertoire a little bit with series like Orange Junk and Magical How, which are a little bit more, uh, I think, appeal to the younger set. Although, uh, we won't go into it here, but we'll have Eureka uh, on a future podcast. Eureka um, is the mangaka behind magical how how that's gonna get pretty fucked up too guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep it'll be great she walked Yay! me through what's gonna happen in chapter three and chapter four and i'm like oh yeah <laughs> time for some feels kids yeah all about the feels like i've been wanting to make a cute series and then just have it turn into just this horrifying thing but i think people know me too well now that they'll <laughs> never trust me anyways so. yeah it's gonna be like your 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 love of Hunter Hunter really shows how mm. you know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's all you need to know about really me. Really messed up. <laughs> Actually, oh yeah, Hunter Hunter, another emotional sadism recommendation. Yep. Especially yep. Chimera. I've never gotten to that that arc yet. I need to someday. The only watching the anime, the only other thing that made me cry that hard was Grave of the Fireflies. Whoa. Wow. And that's like the gold standard of you can't watch yeah. through this with dry eyes. You'll be like a wreck on the floor. It's oh. actually, I'm kind of a crybaby, but I was spoiled, so I thought I wouldn't be affected. Yeah. But I got to the end of that arc and I cried nonstop for 40, 50 minutes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and my nice. roommate got worried. She could hear me sobbing. And like came in and was like, Jen, are you okay? What happened? Like, I'll never be and okay then, again. And then in my sobbing, through my sobbing, I tried to explain the plot of Chimera Ant. And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Just scream anime and then curl in a ball yeah. on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> anime happened to me today. Oh, oh, we should probably briefly mention that we are going to be kickstarting Knight's Errant Volume 1 this month. It's going to launch probably shortly after this podcast comes out, maybe like a couple weeks, but exciting yeah so uh Yay. It, jen is working on extra stuff to make that kickstarter extra awesome and after i guess this podcast i will send you some sketches yeah seriously <laughs> i want you to send me so much stuff now jen it's just like you yeah. opened my mind and my heart and now i have needs <laughs> okay well uh thank you for joining us listeners uh, we hope that uh, you join us next month as well, and we hope you, you know, obviously enjoy um, Knights Errant and Tokyo Demons for you sadists out there, and all of the suffering that we have in store for you. Yes. So thank you for coming, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.